0: Uh, My name is George Dyson. I'm a chaplain over at the Galveston Detention Center, and uh, I've been in Italy for uh, 15 days. So uh, in Italy, you you eat, and then you walk some more, and then you eat, and then you walk a little bit more, and then you eat some more. Uh, So I ate uh, my way through Italy. It was amazing. Uh, but it is good to be back. I am very happy to be back. When I was gone, I was able to detach myself a little bit from uh, culture here, from the, uh, the madness that, uh, that is in our culture. As you know, as a lot of folks who know me know, I like to engage culture from a Christian worldview, to constantly look at ideas and question ideas. And so, as I was flying back from Italy, nine hours, digging into uh, to the different headlines that I was able to see uh, while I was gone. In the New York Times, transgender could be defined out of existence under the Trump administration. In CNN, more U.S. teens are rejecting boy or girl gender identities, a study finds. Um, this is one's my favorite, Scientific American. Same-sex mice parents give birth to healthy mouse pups. Yeah, we're going to get to that, yeah. Uh, but actually the one that caught my attention because it deals with what we're going to be talking about today is on the cover of uh, the Wall Street Journal, Do We Still Need to Believe in Hell?, This is Professor Scott Bruce, a professor in Medieval Theology, and this is what he says, Hell lost some of its purchase on humankind in the 19th century when new scientific theories such as Darwinism eroded the authority of the Bible and the tides of sentiment turned against God's wrath in favor of His mercy. Today we're going to be talking about hell you got to kind of uh, um, admire uh, Jason. He's very shrewd. He's like, hey, you want to come up here and preach in November? What are you going to preach on? Yeah, what am I going to preach on? Hell. <laughs> so happy to, to bring you in today to talk about this lovely topic. But in all seriousness, hell is an essential doctrine to the Christian faith. And you all know Jason. He never would have set me up like that. Hell is very important. If we don't have hell, we don't have the Christian God in the Bible. We have this God who kind of accepts everything that I do, every idea that I have, every orientation that I have, every choice that I've made, God accepts that. And God becomes a God of mercy, and nothing else really exists. The liberal Protestantism that we see even in the church today, I think, is best summed up by Richard Niebuhr, who said, A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the administration of a Christ without a cross. The best part about Galveston Bible Church is that we take the gospel line by line. We can't gloss over any of the hard topics. We're going to be digging into that today. Matthew 18, please turn to Matthew 18, where we are going to continue on with this idea where Jesus talks about hell twice, In Matthew 18, just a bird's-eye overview of what's going on, we're towards the end of Jesus' life. Okay, Two chapters ago, John the Baptist beheaded. In another two chapters, Jesus has his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He's near the end of his life. There is some serious teaching going on. He's getting up into people's faces more and more and more. His teaching is getting a little bit more hot. Let's look at the text. Matthew 18, I'm reading from the uh, New American Standard Bible, 18:5. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. Verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or feet and be cast into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to it that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give me help today to teach the idea of eternal damnation faithfully, clearly, gently, and truthfully. Please open up our hearts. Please allow us to separate your word from culture. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, a couple textual items to point out here. The word for stumbling in the New American Standard, if you're reading from the ESV, it may say cause to sin, cause to fall into temptation, that word, Greek word skandalizo. uh, It's used six times in this passage and it's used three times as a noun and three times as a verb. As a verb, it is used, it is used to, to, to basically convey falling into temptation or falling away from the faith. We have the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But the noun in the Greek dictionary, the noun is even more interesting and more kind of terrifying. It says, to capture something alive to catch something alive, a trap, a trap. And so as we talk about hell, before I get into a real big in-depth discussion on the doctrine of hell, we're gonna talk about some ideas of hell. How does hell catch us? What ideas that are originating in culture, not in the word of God, come into our lives and attack us on a daily basis and then trip us and catch us and snare our thinking The first one, I'm going to cover three of these traps. The first one is this one. Jesus preached love. How can anyone call themselves Christian if they don't love and accept everyone? And this is that idea we get that Jesus is a God of love. That's it. Love is elevated. We worship on the mantle of love. God is, what we're really saying is not that God is love, but that love is God. Redefining God so that love is his only attribute. Well, we got to get into the text for this though. Okay? So imagine this. Jesus calls a little child to him. See him? Little guy. Hey, guys, gather around. Peter, why do you always get me in the front? Can you give John John some room? Get your hands off, James. Okay. Look at this little guy. You see him? It would be better for you, if you lead him into sin, it would be better for you to attach a one-ton stock anchor to your neck and jump off Pleasure Pier. Good guy. Okay, go ahead, sport. At what point does he release the child or is he going into the woes with the child still with him? Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right hand is allowing you to search the internet and dig into pornography, go get that axe out of Home Depot and slice it off. God's a God of love. Jesus Christ speaks about hell more than anyone in the New Testament. It is a lie from the, straight from the pits of hell that God is one made up of all mercy. Jesus preached truth. Amen. He preached truth and it got him killed at the age of 33. The truth is, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Who are the unrighteous, you ask? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so what's most drastic and what we have to always as a Christian look at are these ideas. We reject, as believers in Jesus Christ, the title gay Christian. It is a logical, logical, um, illogical nonsense on par with married bachelor, the married bachelor. There's no such thing as a gay Christian. It makes clear, very clear here that those who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, I say practice because there's no such thing as a homosexual as an identity. I am not a heterosexual. There's no one out there who is a homosexual. All of us have a bent towards practicing sexual things that are outside of God's created order. God's created order is made very clear to us in Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, Jesus says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason, a man shall leave, his flesh, shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's our authority. That is our truth claim. It's being attacked. And it's always under attack. It's, it's basically with these ideas. This is one from the newspaper uh, from CNN. The science in this area is very much a work in progress, but we already know that gender identification isn't fixed by your sexual organs and that the social meaning of gender is informed by culture. Listen to the language there. We already know that gender identification isn't fixed by your sexual organs. Really? Who's we? And what do we know? How do we know it? And by what authority do we know it? Always be careful with the coercion that comes on a way of thinking within a society, mental coercion of changing the way that a social structure has been perceived through decades, okay? What they're basically saying here is that all modern people know this. If you don't know that, then you're backwards in your thinking. That's kind of how that text reads. We, as Jesus followers, we must engage culture, We must engage culture. We never let this go, and we engage it with the truth. Matthew 19, we believe in the authority of the Bible, and therefore we follow what God says about the truth, not what we say about the truth. Trap number two, satisfying your sexual desires is only natural. Sleeping around and watching porn is not that big of a deal. And in this one, what I think sometimes is that we go into Exodus chapter seven, or expression Exodus chapter twenty of the Ten Commandments, seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And some people, if you look at their Bible, there's a little asterisk next to it. And it's like, what is the asterisk? It was the back of the book, the back of the Bible, okay? Except in my case where I met the perfect Christian girl, met the perfect Christian guy. You know, except for my situation. Yeah, that's true, but but or, this is the lie that I encounter the most in the detention center or with young kids or even in college kids, is this one. Adultery means sex outside of marriage. So what that means is that once I get married, I can't have sex outside of marriage. Before that, it's a wild, wild west. I can pretty much do what I want. i got to sow some oats, you know what I'm saying? And No, that's not at all what God says. God says, until you are in the covenant of marriage... You are to embrace your singleness. And then you wait until marriage. We wait until the permanence of marriage before we get to enjoy the fruits of intimacy. And modernity is one big attack against the permanency of marriage. So if we look again, if I go to some, uh, some studies, the National Center for Health Statistics has two important findings. One, young people are cohabitating more than they ever have in the past. Probably no surprise. Number two, though, this one is surprising. Cohabitating makes divorce more likely after eventual marriage, not less likely. So when you're cohabiting, you're with someone, you're thinking in the, in, in the thoughts of culture that I hear, it's, well, we got to see if we fit. we got to make sure that we're compatible to each other. So we're going to live together before we get married. You're decreasing your chances of a successful marriage once you get married. God, in his infinite wisdom, in his perfect plan, says marriage is permanent. Marriage in the covenant of marriages, once you have that permanent structure set, then you enjoy the fruits of intimacy with your spouse. That is God's perfect plan. Trap number three. And this one's kind of my favorite, trap number three. We are social justice warriors fighting for human rights and equality. We are going to root out oppression. We're going to root out poor, uh, poverty, all these things. Now, uh, folks, there is real oppression. There are real people who are oppressed. We acknowledge that. But what I have a problem with is the oppression that... uh, or I should say the social justice is kind of rooted in this uh, Marxist theory, Uh, in particular critical theory, which came from Germany, the Frankfurt School, and it came over to the United States, like all bad ideas coming from Europe and kind of made its home in Colombia. And what this says, critical theory, is that we need to blow up all of the political systems, all the structures of authority. We have to blow all these things up completely all the way down to the foundation. That's why it's called critical. And then we can officially root out inequality and injustice. But until then, until we get rid of all those oppressive oppressive systems, we are not doing that. And there's a, there's a huge problem here. There's a couple problems. The first problem is that rights and equality become a social construct. So we be created, it is a, this industry of entitled victims. An industry of entitled victims. Let me give you one example. Again, I go back to this transgender revolution that is uh, pushing through our country right now. In the New York Times, transgender could be defined out of existence under the Trump administration. And uh the... uh, the writer says, Jennifer Finney Boylan says, Trump cannot define away my existence. Trump is going to basically uh, pass a law that would uh, define a person's gender based off of their uh, sex at birth. Make sure that we again look at the idiocy, the, uh, the illogical position she's putting forward here. She has defined her existence based on a biology that is not her own sex and says that you are trying to eradicate my existence. If this law passes, I will not exist. Really? Is that what we've come to? And In the article, she says three times, she says, you could have left us alone. She's addressing President Trump. You could have left us alone. You could have left us alone. But quite clearly, that's not what she's asking, to be left alone. She's asking to subvert 200 years of structures regarding your birth certificate, male, female, regarding boy, male, female bathrooms, to completely change 200 and some years of legislation and history of 325 million Americans today to accommodate one million Americans today. And we're gonna revamp everything from the military to the prison system. Everything needs to be changed because of your preference, because of your new identity. And that is, the, that, is the, that is one of the entitled groups. And this is very popular. This is very popular. And how it sinks into the church is through the corporations come in. And we have these corporations that make this popular, like Ben & Jerry's put out a new flavor called Pecan Resist. Limited batch flavored chocolate ice cream with white and dark fudge chunks, pecans, walnuts, and fudge-covered almonds. Sounds kind of good, actually. Uh, you thought you were just eating ice cream. Uh, but the goal is to lick injustice and champion those fighting to create more, a more just and equitable nation for us all. We as Jesus followers, we believe that there is genuine oppression in this country there is a prostitution ring running from Houston to Austin up to Dallas and back there is poverty in this world there are people who are trying to get into this country immigrants we have real problems as a Jesus follower we know that a Jesus follower is always going to look to the word of God though for their authority on how then to approach the problems how do we approach it Ecclesiastes would be a great place to start Ecclesiastes 1, 9 and 10, there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new? Already it has existed before the ages that were before us. We have not been able to cure poverty because the ancient Romans weren't able to cure poverty. We weren't able to do a lot of things. We have not been able to do a lot of things. Countries through time have not been able to do a lot of things. Just because we have a lot of new technology does not mean that all of a sudden we're going to be able to solve problems. Uh, Tracy came home from, from, from work, and she was talking about like, syncing up our calendars on the iPhone. We need to sync up our calendars. We need to do this so we can you know, tune into each other's calendars and things like that. Trust me, a lot of good ideas come out of NASA. Like, there's, people are majorly into their gadgets, right? You know what they had 2,000 years ago? A calendar. <laughs> there's nothing new under the sun. You will never eradicate poverty. You will never eradicate prostitution. You will never eradicate some of these evils. Why? Ecclesiastes 1.15, what is crooked cannot be straightened. Jesus says in John 12.28, you will always have the poor with you. And so we, as Jesus' followers, engage culture. We take the Great Commission from Matthew 28, which says, go out, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, And we look at Matthew 25, which says, I was naked, you clothed me, I was thirsty, you fed me, or you gave me something to drink. I was hungry, you fed me, I was in prison, you visited me. So we're going to do these things throughout history again. Christians, in Roman times, a Roman governor wrote to the emperor and said, we don't understand these guys. They're taking care of their own sick, but they're also taking care of our sick. Christians throughout time, Zika virus, Christians were running in, doctors, medical groups, running into Africa to help this problem. But we also realize that we will never solve it. We will never fix it. It will never come to a solution on our own. Only God can, because instead of an oppressive social structure built through economic forces, we believe that at one time, God created man and woman in perfect harmony. And then they, we said no to God and turned away from God. And ever since then, we have been reeling from the effects of the sin that is in our lives. Isaiah 46, 9 says, and this is what social justice warriors should, should take into account. I am God, there is no other. I am God and there's no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God will do what he chooses to do. Beware of preaching that makes you feel like God needs you. Beware of politicians or leaders that believe they can use human methods to solve our problems, to completely eradicate poverty. We know that God is going to do it in his time. And we can't hasten that. All right, so those are a few stumbling blocks in hell. Let's move into hell. The idea of hell, very troubling, troublesome concept. Usually it kind of goes like this. How could a loving God consign someone to hell? Hell. It's essentially, the loving God meets the judging God. How do these two meet? Loving God versus judging God. Um, but make no mistake, uh, secular uh see this in the Bible. Again, from uh, Professor Scott Bruce, "...by any measure hell is a cruel and oppressive concept, a place where sinners suffer unspeakable torments for all eternity for sins committed during their mortal lives." That is an atheist reading the text of the Bible, seeing that that's what it is. He then goes on to celebrate that most Christians don't believe in that now. Why? Because how do we, just, how do we, how do we integrate a loving God with a God of justice? I want to th- say a few things about hell, of course. A few things. Number one, Jesus talked about hell more than heaven. Jesus talked about hell more than heaven. And when he did, he used very intense metaphors. I really love what uh, Tim Keller says here. He says, when people come up to him and say, um, what do you think about hell uh, when, they, when they talk about hell? And he says, well, it's probably metaphorical. And people go, huh? Oh. And he says, metaphorical for something much more infinitely dangerous and harsh, to which they say, huh? Right? Now, Tim Keller, as a good Presbyterian, he's probably borrowing from Jonathan Edwards here, uh, in the torments of hell are exceedingly great. When metaphors in Scripture uh, are used for spiritual things, they fall short of the literal truth. Jesus talks, let's just take two of them, fire and darkness. Jesus talks about fire and darkness. He talks about Gehenna, uh, which is a garbage heap outside Jerusalem. He uses that 12 times. He talks about Hades, which is the Old Testament word for Sheol. Gehenna uh, was from the Hebrew word, uh, the Valley of Henan, which was a area just south of the city of Jerusalem in which pagans would, would sacrifice their children to the god Molech in the second Chronicles. And it slowly became a place where people dumped more and more garbage and refuge and set it on fire to the point where it was always burning. So a person in Jerusalem could look outside as Jesus is talking about these ideas about an eternal fire, about Gehenna, and they would always be able to look and see smoke rising in the distance from this garbage heap that was always on fire, never went out. And so when Jesus talks about fire, when he talks about um, darkness and fire, oh, he also talks about darkness. So darkness would be exclusion from God. If God is light and God cannot look on sin, then he has no business with sin. He cannot be with sin. He turns his face on sin, and therefore we are in darkness. Darkness is essentially isolation from God. From Isaiah 59, 2, your sin has made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Psalm sixty six eighteen. if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Similarly, fire is the disintegration that occurs when we's separated from God. In Mark, Jesus says, "The worm does not die." And what he's referring to is in this garbage heap as worms and maggots are eating organic material, they're eventually going to run out of that organic material and the worms are going to die. And he's saying they'll never die in hell. Why? Because when our physical bodies go away and our physical bodies die, our spirits go on into a place either with God or away from God, and our spirits will live on for eternity, and we will always be in that state of separation from God. That is what hell is, it's separation from God. So it shows us, hell shows us, the next important point about hell is how dependent we are on God. If everything is created by God, and God holds everything together, the heavens, the earth, he is essentially holding hell together as well, is he not? And so the worst thing we can hear from God is, depart from me. Depart from me, Jesus says in Matthew 7. Go away from my presence. Or as Jesus, uh, Paul says in Romans God gave them over. God gave them over. Romans 1, God gave them over to the desires of their heart. God gave them over to a depraved mind. God gave them over. Again, three times. Hell is going to be a place where God gives us what we want in our earthly lives for eternity. J.J. Packer says, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice, All receive what they actually chose, either to be with God forever, worshiping him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. And so how do we preach the eternal damnation, fire, and hell to modern Americans, Christians? Because we don't we just don't hear fire and get afraid. But when you break down those adjectives into the meanings that they are, which is a separation from God for eternity, then it becomes much more real becomes much more obvious to us when we make choices we make decisions in our life when we say this is how you tell me i'm supposed to love someone and who i'm supposed to love yet i think i was made like this and i should decide who i get to love god says okay you can have it you're choosing that over me you see and so essentially god says thy will be done Instead of saying, my will be done, God says, thy will be done. You can have what you want for all eternity. All right. The doctrine of hell explains the costliness of the cross. All right. So um, what I often hear is, uh, I believe in a loving God, but I don't believe in Jesus Christ. How could God pour out his wrath on himself, essentially on his son? That doesn't seem possible. How is that possible? This is important. This is more important than ever to the Christian doctrine. On the cross, Jesus cries out, Eli Eli lama sabachthani. In the Hebrew, that means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you left me? And so what we see happening on the cross is the Father turning his back on the Son. And for a moment, the Son experiences eternal separation, eternal darkness, the fire, he experiences all of that for us. We serve a God who went through hell for us. So, a person who says, I don't believe a loving God could do that, is actually making God less loving because their God is merely sentimental. Their God didn't have any great cost to achieve your salvation. We serve God and we see the cost involved. And when we see the cost that's involved, it forever changes us. We're forever wrecked by the beauty of the cross. But what it stands for knowing how much God did to purchase us from separation away from God love and wrath are two sides of the same coin you can't have one without the other if I absolutely love my wife everything about her I'm going to hate and detest anything that rises up to harm her you hear me anything that could possibly harm her, I am going to attack that with everything I've got. If she's walking in the park and some man comes up to her and is doing some inappropriate things, crazy Pastor G is coming out and I'm going after him. And you would think that I would be a prick if I didn't do that. And yet we see God not visiting your justice upon you or anyone else. God is visiting that justice upon himself. He's taking it for you. And he doesn't visit on a third party. He visits it it on himself. He takes all of the sin and lays it on his son. So it has to be necessary. It has to happen. So um, as a Jesus follower, we are called to engage culture. Uh, Look at verse 10. See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my father who is in heaven. The Greek word for despise literally means to show indifference, to not care that someone is apostatized, and that someone is walking away from the faith. To show no, to show indifference. See to it, Jesus says, it's a command. We must race after people That are walking away from the faith and how do we do that we do that with god's word john 17 17 sanctify them with your truth sanctify them with your word your word is truth so we're going to use the truth as we chase after people who are walking away from the truth and we do it with gentleness what does that look like? Well, uh, you know that I moonlight as an airline pilot. This is something that I do. In the airline industry, there are a lot of men that are effeminate. That's on the list, right? That's on the list. I'm working with these men. In one particular case, I was sitting at the gate, and this, this, this kid it was uh, basically talking very loudly and animately about how he was going to be wearing a dress for the show, couldn't pick out his shoes, didn't know what to wear. I was like, give me, that, give me that camera or that picture. So he shows it to me, and I was like, you need to be wearing blue shoes with that dress. I had an older sister. I know, what it, I know what, what, how, you should, how you should dress, so I was giving him a little advice there, wondering when at what point am I going to be able to talk to this young man about what God's truth is. Guess what? It never came. It never came. I just got to talk to this young man. That's it. At some point, I would hope to be able to say, I'm a pastor. I work with kids in detention centers. Here's what God's truth is. God created male and female. so, We will engage culture and we will talk to people about the truth of Jesus Christ. But oftentimes, we have to wait for them to ask. We have to wait for them to ask us. Because until then, you'll just be a noisy clong, banging off, and and no one's going to hear what you're saying. But we must do it. Um, Let's see here. The next thing I want to point out to you is that... uh, In this moral revolution that we're seeing, uh, this growing insanity of culture, verse 7, we should not be surprised by it. It is inevitable. As Theo Hobson, the great Anglican uh, theologian, said, in order for a moral revolution to occur, that which was condemned must be celebrated. That which was celebrated must be condemned. And those who will not celebrate also must be condemned. We can look at this with anything gay marriage. That which was condemned must be celebrated that which was celebrated, regular marriage, must be condemned. And then those who will not celebrate as well, they need to be condemned as well. And so we see this coming. We know this is coming. We need to be ready for this as Jesus' followers. And we also understand the costliness of the cross. And so we look at everything through the lens of the cross, what I call cross vision. And so if anyone thinks, well, I don't want you to judge me, man. Why do you got to do, why do you gotta why do you have to be all judgmental? Let me just walk through uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 from my life. Uh, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, adulterers, men who premise, promise, practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers. Let's see, sexually immoral. I had sex before I got married. Worst decision of my life. There was a time where I was chasing after things other than God, and I still have a problem with that. Adulterers, Jesus says if you look at a woman, you've already had created adultery in your heart. So I've got brothers that we get together and we talk with each other to make sure that we are not being tempted by anything in the world. Men who practice homosexuality, never been there, but I do, uh, I think, have a little bit of bromance with Brent. Sometimes I think he's got like... (laughs) Great hair, <laughs> wondering, you know, can I pull that off? Is that something you wonder if my in the Navy? Can I pull that off? No. In the, in the military, if, you're, if your hair is getting a too long, the skipper says, your hair's looking a little aggressive. That's how that works. So no, in all seriousness, and Jason and I are going to do a Friends Forever collage at some point. <laughs> uh, thieves, I've been in jobs where I've taken a little bit of the office supplies. You know, there's some paper. I'm going to use that at home. Maybe a couple of this, a couple of that office supplies. Use those at home. Well, there I'm stealing. Uh, Greedy, I do. I've I've wanted more money for different things. Drunkards, hey, uh, I'm an an alcoholic. Been through the 12-step program. Haven't drank in several, several years. Still don't drink. What else? Slanders, swindlers. I've often um, not talked about my coworkers in a manner that I should have. So if you want to call me judgmental, hey, I'm walking through that list, and I'm the first one to break every single one of those things. And on a daily basis, I ask God to help me repent and help me walk in a way that I can speak truthfully to culture, to my brothers. And so I look through everything, that lens of cross vision, or the 23rd thesis that Martin Luther pegged to the church door at Wittenberg a theology of the cross calls the thing a thing a theology of the cross calls a thing what it is he's borrowing from the prophet Isaiah who says what are those who call evil good and good evil we will always stand in for the truth and preach that in gentleness folks hell is a real place hell is a place that people are going Hell is a place that God says, thy will be done. The choices we make in our lives echo on into eternity. Never ever fall away from the faithfulness that it takes to preach the truth of God in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if I have incorrectly, unfairly, or untruthfully preached any of your doctrine about eternal damnation, please forgive me if I have fallen short of the truth in any case. But open our eyes to this most precious doctrine. It shows us how much you went through for us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your Son, Thank you for the costliness of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.